It was my daughter once again asking, what are you talking about? <laughs> this works with the sermon today. This is good. <clears throat> so there's this deleted scene from Pulp, Pulp Fiction. Um, I got no laughs. I was expecting, yeah, sorry. Uh, that I immediately thought of when I first read our gospel reading. Uma Thurman's character, Mia Wallace, asked John Travolta's character, Vincent Vega, the following question. When in conversation, do you listen or do you just wait to talk? <laughs> Vincent thinks about it for a moment, and then he says, I wait to talk, but I'm trying to listen. That difference between listening and waiting to talk is spot on what's going on here with Peter in our reading today, as he tries to tell Jesus how to be the Messiah, and as he proposes housing arrangements for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Just, just listen, man. Which is what the heavenly voice says. Listen to him. This difference between listening and waiting to talk is also such good commentary on our relationships with each other and with God. When we're waiting to talk instead of really listening, we're not connecting. We're not being open and receptive. We're projecting something of ourselves that gets in the way of that connection. And that keeps us stuck right where we are, stopping all kinds of growth. But the picture we get of discipleship today in our scriptures requires all kinds of openness and receptivity to what Jesus is actually saying. It's readiness to get up and go where he goes. Because where he's about to tell us he's leading us is, is probably not what we were about to say. And it's certainly not a place we can get to by building a shrine around it. Today is about people, places, and things. It's about how we engage people at the places we consider holy and what discipleship with Jesus will demand of us. After my freshman year in college, I went on a study tour of Israel, Turkey, Greece, and Italy. We hit all the major archaeological sites from the Bible, all the famous places from the familiar stories, Jericho, Bethlehem, Capernaum, the Dead Sea, the Sea of Galilee. We spent a lot of time in Jerusalem, and we tracked the missionary journeys of Paul around the Mediterranean. I learned so much on this trip. It was the beginning of so much for me, and it's not an understatement, or I should say it's not an overstatement to say that it changed my life. But throughout the trip, I had this habit. It was, it was, a, it was a bad habit. Okay, it was an illegal habit <laughs> of, of collecting rocks or pieces of pottery that I'd find at different sites and putting them in my backpack and taking them with me. <clears throat> to be clear, this is called stealing. <laughs> so I'd collect them all in my backpack, and when I got home from this trip, I set up this whole display shelf in my room at my parents' house, and it's still there, with all the pieces laid out carefully in a glass cabinet labeled with where they're from. I remember we went to the Valley of Elah, where, according to 1 Samuel, David collected his five smooth stones from a riverbed before fighting Goliath. And so naturally, when we got to that riverbed, I saw my opportunity. I bent down, tried to feel the full weight, the full gravity of the moment. 3,000 years ago, my namesake 
stood where I'm standing, chose his faithful stones from, the one, from among the ones I'm looking at right now. So I picked my five, put them in my bag, and as I'm getting back on the tour bus, I look over my shoulder just in time to see a dump truck pull up to the riverbed <laughs> and pour out a fresh pile of stones. Apparently, I was not the first to have this idea. One of the things you run into on those study tours is this idea of holy places, holy places. And something we talked about a lot on that trip with my professors was the question of what makes a place holy. This is what Peter is dealing with in our reading today. He has this experience of Jesus transfigured before him, and the way he wants to deal with it is by trying to build something around it. He's encountering these holy people, Jesus, Moses, Elijah, shining with the light of God's glory, and the way he wants to respond is by putting it in a box to permanently mark the place as holy. Now, the voice from heaven seems to shut down this approach, pointing out that the way we should deal with the holiness of Jesus is to listen to him as opposed to building a house for him. It's about doing what he says, going where he goes, not trying to get him to stay put. Well, despite the message from the heavenly voice, this has not stopped the church from building many a building to mark the places it's considered holy over the past 2,000 years, motivating many a college student to go on a holy land tour, and even to try to bring back some of the land with him in his checked bag. Now, there's an honest devotion at the root of all of this. It's that idea of walking where Jesus walked, swimming in the sea where the Gospels tell us he walked on water, and if you go to the Holy Land, you'll find no shortage of pilgrims who've come from around the world to these holy sites to kiss a stone, or in my case, to steal one or two. But stemming from that simple, good desire to get closer to Jesus by touching the stones he once touched, there's been this impulse to build. As a church built on just about every site mentioned in the Bible, with all their own gift shops, too. Here's where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Here's where he multiplied the fish and the loaves. There's a fish tank there. Here's the mountain where he was transfigured. Here's the place where he had breakfast with the disciples on the beach after his resurrection. They're beautiful places, all of them. But if you pay attention to the people at these places, you will find deep conflict. Sometimes there's conflict in the form of disagreements about where things happened, who's got the right place. The most famous example of this is a debate about where Jesus was crucified and buried. There's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, that's the traditional site, and then about a mile and a half away, there's the garden tomb. Now, there are some interesting arguments there, issues of history and archaeology about which one's got the better site, but the bigger issue is a different kind of conflict. It's when people agree about the place, but they fight about who it belongs to. The traditional site of the crucifixion and burial of Jesus is the prime example. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is a massive complex, and no fewer than six different Christian denominations 
claim it. The Catholics have a stake, and so do all kinds of Eastern Orthodox, and they have to map out down to the square tiles on the floor who gets what parts. Now, sometimes, as different profession, uh, processionals of worship are going at the same time, they might bump into each other. Apparently, fights have broken out. There's this legendary wooden ladder that's on the outside of the church on a platform, and no one can agree who it belongs to. So it's literally been sitting there, untouched, unmoved, for almost 100 years. There's pictures of it from back in the 30s that you can look at today. It's still there. Now, in a place of such division, you might imagine, well, who, who gets the keys to the front door? Well, they couldn't agree on that. So the Muslims get them. And they come in to open the doors every day. If you're wondering where the Protestants are in all of this, we don't even get a corner in this building. And that's because Protestants generally prefer the, the quaint garden tomb that's a mile and a half away for where they believe all this happened. They're probably wrong about this, but at least it's quiet. <laughs> what struck me about the Holy Land is that it's packed with pilgrims, with students, with tourists, paying more attention to their idea of these places than to the people who are there. The fights over, gets, over who gets to have church services at the place where Jesus died, in theory, a place that ought to bring us together, is a startling example of the church's complete failure to work through its divisions. But then there were the people like me who were more interested in what was buried underneath the land than the people who were currently living there. Almost every site that's fascinating for archaeological, historical reasons is also holy for at least three reasons belonging to three different religions. It's tempting to forget that in the fervor of looking at a rock that's 3,000 years old and seeing only what's significant to your own worldview and not listening to why other people might consider the same ancient site holy for a completely different set of reasons. Unlike the regularly replenished stones at the riverbed in the Valley of Elah, there are today still of the same massive stones for the foundation that once belonged to the Jerusalem temple, where the Jewish people once offered sacrifices to atone for the sins of the world, and where Jesus once taught parables and flipped over tables. These stones are now thrown down, ruins, because in AD 70, the Romans made sure of it. And today, the Dome of the Rock, the holy site for the Muslim faith, now stands on the same foundations up above. And around the corner, at the western wall of the foundations, the Jewish faithful have been coming for decades to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And as you're trying to gain access to any of these areas, whether you're going to pray for peace, or to take a selfie with your friends, or to look at the archaeology, you have to go through more security than you do to get on an airplane. And you have to pass Israeli soldiers holding machine guns. Whether it's the Christians fighting over who gets to have church at the place where Jesus gave his life for us, or the Israelis and the Palestinians fighting over who gets to call this land home, there are no easy answers. And anyone who pretends like there's a simple solution to any of these conflicts isn't taking place 
seriously. Because places are important to people. Places are where we encounter the holy, where we fall in love, where we meet God. Places become part of us. We can't just say people are just more important than places. So forget the places, make peace between the people. Come on, everyone, give and take a little bit, huh? It's not that simple. That's a nice idea, but more often than not, that will mean some people giving less and taking more. Places are important to people, yet, oh, as complicated as all that is, of one thing we can be certain, peace will never come as long as people are secondary, as long as we're paying less attention to people than to places. I've already given you Pulp Fiction. Let me get to the other part of my sermon title, what I learned on I-40. There's this place on I-40 heading east into that pass that takes you through the mountains into North Carolina. I always forget the mile marker, but I always know it when I get there. I think it's one of the best views on the interstate. You come around a curve at the top of a hill, and on a clear day, here's what you get to see. The road slopes down before you into a straight line that disappears into a valley of intersecting mountains. Everyone has their own picture of what paradise looks like, and that's, that's close for me. It's the wild journey. It's the feeling of being so small in the midst of something so big, getting enveloped among the twists and the turns of those ancient giants. I love that place. A few years ago, as I was driving through there, but I was still a few miles away from that, my favorite view, I was stuck in horrible stop-and-go traffic. And it became abundantly clear that it had nothing to do with an accident or construction. So I needed to find who to blame. And I decided I pegged who it was. Some trucker a quarter mile up the road, and I don't even remember what I thought that person did. Something I decided was unforgivably terrible, like merging like he'd never driven a car before. I don't know. I don't even remember, but I do remember the hatred that built in my heart for this person. Now, once the traffic finally opened up and I got back up to speed on the, on the road, I decided I needed, I needed to see who this person is. And you've done this too, right? Someone makes a poorly executed U-turn or cuts you off, and for some reason we feel like we need to confirm our worst suspicions of who, who this person must be. What do we think we're going to get out of that? But we always want to look. I'm going to look. So that's what I decide I'm going to do. And as I pull up next to this truck to give it my best death stare, <laughs> I realize I just missed the view. My favorite view of this place that I love so much, I missed it. And two things strike me. First, I just missed seeing the beauty of the world because of the anger in my heart. Because of my fixation on this person and what I decided that they did that must have been so unforgivable, I miss the beauty of this place that I love. And then I realized something else. How have I let my love of this place come between me and another person? How does love of the one become hatred of the other? 
When we, like Peter, decide to build shrines to house our experiences of the holy, we become dangerous. We elevate our ideas of a place over our encounters with the people that make the places we love holy. Part of the problem is that we want to hang on to our experiences of holiness, our love of a place, by building something around it. We want to preserve it. We want to make sure we can come back to it. But the shrines we build around our experiences at a place, those are not the same things as the things we experienced. It's an illusion. What we experience is now past. It can't be taken away from us but it also can't remain with us forever. When we build something, though, that's a way to give ourselves the illusion that what we experienced can remain with us forever. It's an idol. It's really an attempt to avoid having to face the fleeting reality of our lives, to avoid facing the truth that in order to experience the holy, we have to remain present. We have to remain present in the places with the people we love. We have to pay attention. The other thing is that when we build something around the experiences of the holy, we now have something we need to defend, something that we feel like we need to protect in order to guard that experience of that place. And that's where we run into conflict with other people over places. When it comes to people and places, The point isn't to say one's more important than the other, to pay more attention to one and less attention to the other, but to be careful with the things we build that come between us, because those things are neither the people nor the places. On one level, what Peter is doing is what we all try to do when we want to put our experience with God in a box. We want this experience to make sense to us, We want to be able to wrap our minds around it. We want to be able to make it last. And so we reduce it to a thing that's manageable. Something that we could put in a backpack and carry home with us. And display on a shelf under glass with a label. It's our temptation to turn Jesus into a bumper sticker or a doctrine instead of the living Lord who calls us to follow him today. And it's the same temptation that can lead us to turn the church into a building that we fight over instead of the beautiful people who make it the living body of Christ, shining light in this world. The presence of God like a devouring fire on a mountaintop is not something we can contain. The face of Jesus shining like the sun is not something we can contain. And the people of God in the power and the love of the Holy Spirit is not something we can contain. Pay attention to what Jesus says to the disciples right after that heavenly voice tells them all to listen. He says, get up and do not be afraid. The desire to put God in a box and to put the church in a building the thing that pushes us to build shrines to our experiences of the holy and that brings us into conflict with people over places. It's driven by fear. We fight with people over places because we're afraid of something. 
we're afraid they'll ruin the places we love. Or we're afraid we won't get to have the places we love if these people get to love it too. Or we're just afraid of those people and can't imagine trying to figure out how to live with them in the same places. Again, I won't pretend there are any easy answers here, but I know that it's got to begin with listening. With listening to Jesus, and he says to us, do not be afraid. Six days before Jesus went up on the mountaintop with Peter, James, and John, he taught his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. The work of discipleship is not the work of preserving and containing, but the work of following Jesus in the path of giving away. If we're going to figure out how to live together in the same places with other people, we can't be afraid to let go. Not of people and not of places, but of the things that come between us. One of the best ways to do this is by listening to what other people say about the places we both love. And really listening, not just waiting to talk. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.